This is Cole. Learn how to tell stories in logic. My God. <laughs> You're so, this is so hard. And this is Ron. Yes. I hate your guts. Oh, that's a lie. That's a lie right there. Oh, desperation is a stinky cologne. We are the creative team. Oh, my God. I quit. Well, it's the big hole. Did you really just book that? <laughs> Michael Jordan and The Undertaker. Uh, in your face. One of them has 30 years, and the other one is just Michael Jordan. Woo! Welcome back to another exciting episode of... Oh! The Creative Team. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of... The Creative Team. I am your host, Cole Dawson, and with me, as always, my hashtag team partner, Ron Kilborn. Ronald, how the heck are you today, bud? Oh, Stephen Colbert. I am happy to be here. I am happy to be a part of this show. Do you notice how I switched it up there? It wasn't a wrestler pun, uh, because today you're going to be the interviewer today on a special episode of Who the Fuck is, well, me, Ron. <laughs> how did you feel? How did you feel last week about our uh, book our take it up with creatives for each other oh it was fun i uh i went with the i went with the close to the chest uh wwe style storyline for you for you and uh you went to the the AEW uh borderline dan lambert but with some what was some you know um some wrestling skill along with it so you made me uh want to uh, destroy all the cosplay wrestlers i think that was uh i think that was a treat to hear uh, it sounds super fun Makes me want to lace up the boots right now and just get that angle going. Um, Absolutely. I think this is I mean, obviously, it's a little weird to do this one year in, but, you know, we wanted to get a lot of content in. So for any new listeners out here, the, this we, this few weeks of episodes would be a great place to start. If you're not sure who the fuck I am or who the fuck Ron Kilborn is, these, these episodes are literally titled, Who the Fuck is Cole and Ron? And today it is, Who the Fuck is Ron Kilborn? So, um, when I did my interview, I like how you started, you know, you know, and I didn't think about it necessarily when I was putting my interview together that uh, obviously we've talked most frequently about our fandom. Ooh, Broken Skull, look at you. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I just... I'm usually drinking the liquid death, which is like a water that looks like a beer. But since I'm in the hot seat today and I have to speak openly and candidly, I decided to give uh, Steve Austin's beer a try because my wife is not a wrestling fan, but she tolerates my fandom. And she is so adorable that she'll go to the store and if she sees anything remotely wrestling, <laughs> even something I don't partake in, beer, uh, she'll buy it for me just because she'll think I'll put it on my shelf because it says Steve Austin's name on it, which is super uh carol brady adorable of her but today I'm absolutely gonna, today i'm gonna drink it maybe a possible online review there you go yes mrs kilborn is absolutely one of the most thoughtful humans around and i love her to death so how's it taste it's definitely a beer what <laughs> yeah ipas are uh, uh an acquired taste from what i hear and I, I don't drink beer at all as i don't drink any alcohol but uh i've uh yeah Beer, beer. If I do end up drinking alcohol, uh, it won't be beer. I promise you that. Uh, I could probably sneak some uh, rums or uh, Jack Daniels, something of the likes, in some sodas and do okay with that. But uh, it won't be beer. I could promise you that. My dad made sure of that when I was about eight, nine, ten years old, letting me taste the skunkiest, most bitter beer of all the times. And uh, yeah, that's I. I can't do it. <laughs> uh, 
So today it is who the fuck is Ron Kilborn? But I did want to start from the beginning uh, because I think for me it's an important part of the story. And we've covered most of this, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. But when did you first discover the thing that is professional wrestling? Uh, well, I'm not going to go into full detail again because I have at nauseum, but. It- I was flipping through the channels on TV at eight years old, and I came across superstars, and there is Jeff Jarrett wrestling a clown named Doink. And I was hooked ever since. And then that uh, sparked the storyline of the whole Undertaker, missing Undertaker, and then that leading up to my first pay-per-view ever in 1994, SummerSlam. And then I never looked back. And I just wrestling has just been my thing. Like, there was no sports in the house. My dad wasn't a sports fan until later in his life he started, like, watching sports. But at the time, it was just music videos and then wrestling. And then I was on an island by myself. You know, I would always just watch wrestling alone. Nobody in my house enjoyed it or liked it. Or they just, uh, they kind of, like, tolerated it, made fun of it. But, you know, that was just my thing. That was that was what my personality was. I had nothing to contribute in the conversation unless it was happening in a wrestling ring. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's a little bit interesting about uh, a wrestling fandom in general is it's kind of a quasi-sport, but it's also kind of in the vein of, like, Dungeons and Dragons for the most part of our life. Like, other than, like, in the hottest part of the Attitude Era, like, from, like, 97 to 99, where it was wrestling was cool and just about everybody watched wrestling and knew Steve Austin and all that uh, you always kind of got the, uh, oh, you like that shit kind of response. Which, and so a lot of us, I think, had that kind of experience where we were on an island liking wrestling and weren't even necessarily going to ask our friends at school if they liked wrestling. So uh, that sparks the question, when was the first time in your life where you really had, like, wrestling friends? you touched on a good subject like that you know you don't go out of your way to say hey what do you think of wrestling like that just it it had such a stigma especially in the new generation era where like you really um, yeah you know it it got a lot more acceptable in the attitude era just because it was like in pop culture uh but yeah at the time in elementary school you know you were labeled you know as a nerd or maybe not so flattering words or you know you can't use today at all uh <laughs> but um you know fat wasn't the only f word i was called in, in those days um <laughs> so uh like the way you would find your wrestling friends is if you would accidentally find out <laughs> if, if someone else liked wrestling and that's what happened uh i didn't really get a real real wrestling friend until high school and that was tyler davidson ty matthews kid carnage whatever you want to call him and he was basically my Johnny Star, if we go to your episode. Yeah, he, yeah. He would tell me that, hey, I'm a wrestler. I'm like, yeah, whatever. But then he actually right. he actually had a card for Empire Wrestling Federation, and he, and he gave that to me. And I was like, wait, what's this? And it was at that moment that there was, like, other wrestling, except for, uh, aside from the stuff I watched on television. So were did you watch WCW as a kid, or was it strictly WWF? No, I watched WCW because it was, you know, again – Growing up, not being into anything else sports-related, I just saw WCW as another, oh, more wrestling? Sweet. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah, so I watched that, you know, at nauseam as well. I think I started watching it uh, in 95. It was before the boom happened, 
So it, I got to I got to like witness you know Scott Hall coming through the crowd and then being confused and like <gasps> what's happening. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, like because uh, I did the same when I first started watching. I watched WCW and WWF uh, in the beginning, and then slowly but surely, I just I you know I stopped watching WCW. Uh, pretty quickly, especially once it was on Mondays and they stopped doing the Saturday shows like the weekend wrestling. Um, yeah, I was like, oh, well, Raw's on, so I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not watching the other show. Sorry, but uh, so then, who were the wrestlers that convinced you that maybe you wanted to do this at some point? Like, who were the guys you watched that were like, I want to do this? They That made you want to do it? Well, as a kid, like, you know, you don't really factor in, like, who you are as a person. You just, you know, yeah. you, you just see larger-than-life characters that you want to just emulate. So, obviously, Bret Hart was one of them. You know, uh, Undertaker was a, is a big one. You know, you, you just... But, like, you know, Undertaker was a weird thing because, you know, at that young of an age, you're kind of, like, confused... You're not really fully grasping that it's a show, so you just think this guy's crazy. Uh, yeah, no, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, anything that was, like, rock star related, because that was a big thing that I was raised on was, you know, the the 80s rock scene, 70s rock scene. My dad was really into that, so seeing those guys and then, like, that being my other outlet for entertainment, it kind of, like, blended it together because, you know, let's face it, if you're a rock fan, uh, people at home, Shawn Michaels is basically David Lee Roth and Freddie Mercury, but he can kick your ass. So, uh, so it was like, it was like the best of both worlds for me. It was like rock stars who were superheroes at the same time. That's what draw, that's what drew me into it. And I don't think, I really don't think my love for like rock music and metal music, I don't think my love for wrestling would be as big without my love for music as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we you touched on it quite a bit in, in the interview with me about when and where you started training. So, obviously, you started training with me. Uh, we already covered that. So, what was your first day in a ring like? Like, how was it for you? Did you second-guess your, your choices? <laughs> Let's start with how I discovered you instead of met you. Because yes. the, the first time i experienced independent wrestling is i went and saw tyler wrestle live uh at empire wrestling federation in san bernardino this is back when they had the shows behind their school yes and you know i just remember being in awe because i was like that is a wrestling ring less than 10 feet from me uh yes you know it's it's a much different experience especially when you're used to being in like the second tier rows of like wwe shows you're never the ring is so out of reach but this is right here and so it's a whole new world and like, and I'm taking it all in as something so new, but to the left of me in like a corner somewhere with his two siblings next to him is someone who clearly has been here once or twice before <laughs> and like almost to the point where I thought he was part of the show and he was yelling obscenities at the wrestlers that were not normal things you would yell at a wrestler. Like I would, I would be at a WWF E show where it was just boo, you suck. But he would verbalize, you're terrible. You are the worst. You cannot <laughs> wrestle. Oh, 
And then just randomly, Cuba! And I was like, why is this guy cheering for all the bad guys? He's cheering for all the bad guys and telling all the good guys that they're terrible. Like, using the word terrible. And that human being that I'm talking about is Cole Dawson, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yes, I I was a critic even at 17. (laughs) Just would not stop. Like, it was like, I was like, man, I got to come back just because if that's the type of energy that this place, you know, gets out of people, then let's, let's go. And then, you know, the, the funny thing is that was also my first EWF show mm. as well. But uh, a lot of those guys had been wrestling for Bill Anderson school and Bill Anderson had shut down. So some of those guys had, you know, to go somewhere and the better wrestlers, uh, you know, like Ricky Reyes or Rocky Romero, who, who the Cuba chants were for. Uh, would uh you know they got over there right away there were a lot of guys that really had to pay a lot of dues over again over at ewf after the the you know because when bill the reason bill anderson had a school in the first place was because he split for off from jesse and there was a feud for the three or so years that bill anderson's school uh existed uh yes uh wrestling politics on small time independence is my favorite Yep, it's it's a thing. And you know, it's funny cuz like at the time, you know, it's just for me, it it wasn't something it wasn't an avenue to get into yet. At at, at the time, it was just oh, it's a it's more wrestling. I can go to this place to see live wrestling. Awesome. And then, you know, I remember the card, you know, like it was, you know, a show like that I would own on tape or something like that cuz I remember Ty Matthews wrestled Devon Willis was was which was he was a really uh, fun wrestler to watch. And then yes. It wasn't until I saw this gentleman and I told him this to his face and he actually got all got all, you know, you know, leveled up in, in his mind. But, you know, when Bo Cooper, Brawlin' Bo Cooper, who is pretty much like the California veteran at this point, like everyone like every everyone in California knows Brawlin' Bo Cooper and he and, and he'll always appear on a show and he's a really good dude. And it wasn't until I saw him perform uh, that I was like, I could probably do this, too. Look at him go. Like he's not he wasn't nearly my size, but he was close. Yeah, he's a very large man and he's like 63 like, you know, 350 pounds. Definitely sure. a super heavyweight. Definitely a yes. super heavyweight. So, it wasn't until I saw that guy perform and it and it was cool. It was cool for me to see that and I signed up for Jesse's school and I had a day or two of training there and it was a big eye-opening because, you know, in the at the time you know, I'm rolling around, you know, me rolling around is also, uh, you know, a story in itself. And this was, uh, in hindsight, you know, you got TJ Perkins, Ricky Reyes, Rocky Romero in a ring. Uh, you got Frankie Kazarian, which I had at the time had no idea who he was. He was just a big, beautiful man with long hair. And, and, and I didn't know independent wrestling as a whole at all. And he wasn't the Frankie we would come to know and love yet. But I just knew I was out of my element just because I was seeing all these washboard abs and and just all these athletes. And then there's me. And, you know, they really took a liking to me. And I didn't know it at the time. But, you know, there's not really a lot of people like me in the independent scene. Like, no, when, not at all. When, Guys our size are not, you know, we're not normal. No. Everyone was, was five foot eight and, you know, 180 pounds. Uh, you know, well, between 150 and 180 pounds. You know, if they were in shape, 180, if not 150. Yeah. So Jesse, like when he met me, he was like, brother, you got to come to, you got to come to the school. And like, you know, my dad came and, you know, signed a waiver and 
put a deposit down. I, don't I would bet you money that uh, the deposit that you had, your dad had to put down, was not nearly as high as uh, you know the uh, the the hundredth five foot six hundred and twenty pound kid that showed up. I guarantee you that Jesse was like, ah, brother, we'll work it out. Don't worry about it. I want to get this guy. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. But I didn't care at the time because I just wanted to wrestle. So I, I had a few classes there and then it wasn't until like maybe a few weeks later, it was hard to get there. I think, uh, you know, uh, my dad grew tired of driving to San Bernardino and then my, yeah. and then my, uh, uh, Friend Steve's dad grew tired of driving to San Bernardino, and then Steve started uh, dwindling down interest in driving out there. And yeah. this is before I had a license, so it wasn't I was kind of screwed. And then randomly, Tyler tells me about this gentleman that is having shows in his backyard, and I should consider, you know, trying out. And that's when you officially met me in the parking lot with the most with the most gentlemanly handshake ever that I've ever experienced at, at the time uh, for teenagers uh, Cole would give me the wrestler's handshake that I have let, that I have yet to learn <laughs> at that point <laughs> but uh, I remember me and Steve coming down and trying out on your trampoline for your trampoline show with Steve and I that was like the first official us spending time together yeah I if I remember I think we just had like a you know 10 or 15 minute brawl around my uh yard there and that was kind of the official tryout and it was like yeah sure he can go we're we're, we're good he yeah gets yeah <laughs> yeah so we never did really get uh any bookings on the uh trampoline era which was probably for the best because i was very unstable on that thing well it was right at the very very end of the trampoline and just before we got the ring I yeah mean, it was yeah so so it was good timing so once the ring came into fruition that's when i really stepped up my training game but just because it was so easy to get to because i went to school with your younger siblings yes when you first started training um how long into it were you convinced that you're gonna do this it was right from the get-go, but it was, like, delusional. Like, he's like, I'm going to do this. And, like, as much as, like, others around me would go, you probably can't do this. Uh, but then there was others saying, no, you're so crazy looking that you should do this. So I had yeah. all these, like, tug-of-war internal things and also outside opinions because, you know, people at home, like, I was morbidly obese. Like, like even in high school, like, you know people checking their watches at times yeah i was way too big for the age i was so that comes into play quite a bit so there was people that thought i couldn't do it just because you know I'm, you're kind of handicapped when you're that big so you can't really do a lot of the basics but if you have promoters mind and you see someone that big who can kind of move and bump you know that's dollar signs i guess to a promoter you know haystacks calhoun was you know not the not the fat guy neighbor next door. He but he was a larger than life human just by the sight of him. So I I'm pretty sure that's what people saw. If he can take a bump and get up quickly, then we can work around that. So I've always wanted to do it just because I loved wrestling so much, much to the chagrin of like me actually working harder to better my health and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Okay. So then when you first started. Uh, who were the major influences on the style you wanted to create? You know, you touched on it a little bit, but because I was, you know, borderline 500 pounds, you know, 400 pounds at the time, uh, you know, I wanted to just, you know, go out there and have, like, fast-paced brawls like Stone Cold, but, like, nobody really smartened me up into, like, no, you just need to be 
slower and protect your size and like you know and when you actually leave your feet it means something but like no i just i wanted to have the matches that excited me at the at you know but it would be at the dismay of what a good match from me should look like not really what i like to see you know it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're like the big super heavyweight but you don't personally enjoy super heavyweight matches and don't comprehend you know the stories you should be telling as a super heavyweight well i i think this is where uh, a little bit of my promoter mind helped you out a little bit uh because a lot of your early matches were against smaller people and uh they were booked to be kind of squash matches you were wrestling a lot of the as we talked about two weeks ago the uh smaller masked secondary gimmicks of our people <laughs> and, and but i will say even from the get-go, you were absolutely incredible. And the fact that you did want to work hard and take bumps and do stuff really helped um, to make some of our other uh, let you know smaller characters get over. Like because when you wrestled Shane, you know, my, my brother or my or Super Maiko, uh, you didn't just give them bumps, but when they did bump you, it meant a lot more. And so I think I think you're being a little harsh on yourself as far as your wrestling psychology early on. Um, but uh, I, 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 I like where your head's at. Um, so then um, we did all the backyard stuff. Uh, when did you first start getting outside of the backyard, and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, when the season, like the final season ended, like and we started like closing up shop, I went back to Jesse's school and uh, started really like, you know, training. I think that's when I got my car. So that yeah. helped a lot. Uh, so I, uh, I got there and there was a, the guy who was booking at the time, his name was Rob Richter. I don't know where he is now or what happened to him, but he, he was, he played a major role in getting me shows. And this is when the Mr. Fitness gimmick took effect. Uh, basically, uh, the Simon Dean character came out and like, we were all kicking around the idea of like hey what if we got someone in that gimmick but he was so fat <laughs> that it's absurd <laughs> yeah yeah but he would delusionally call himself in shape and go up to people with actual like muscles and washboard abs and try to get them on his regiment and try to get them into shape even though they're already clearly way more in shape than he is so i thought that was hilarious i thought it was like a good like cover up for me to be you know you know i you know, wrestling's kind of an escape. You know, you 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 go out there, you play this larger than life character, and you know the, I guess like the uh, the ill confident fat kid was always there. But the fact that I get to make that part up front and be delusional about it and be so upfront about, hey, I'm not fat, <laughs> I'm 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 in shape. So I thought that was like super fun. That was really that was something I really got to sink my teeth into as far as like you know, performing like before wrestling. Uh, so my first match was against Powerhouse Pops, uh, which was Black Steel. You know, he's no longer with us. I think him and his son, I, I give them a lot of credit into attempting to showing me how to wrestle and taking on that bit of responsibility to try to, like, chain wrestle with me you know, outside of our backyard. Uh, yeah. Days. They really spent a lot of time with me, even though they, they really shouldn't have. You know, because, you know, they were saying, you don't need to do this, but if you want to learn it just for education, here's how it goes. And bless their heart, they've, they, blew up, they blew themselves up trying to get me to learn. <laughs> well, 
Well, that the 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 thing about Powerhouse Pop Shoes, he had to be in his fifties at that point, something like that. Yes, yeah, he, yeah. He was in his fifties, and like the dude, like he he was a major major influence on me and he was like when he debuts for us jesse i want him to wrestle me and beat me clean and i was like and i remember just looking up to him and just thinking that was like the coolest thing ever that he would go out of his way to lace up a pair of boots just to get his ass kicked by me um so i i loved that a lot and i sad that he's no longer with us oh such a yeah he was a very interesting and cool dude i'm glad i got to know him as well as well as his son Rudy, he's you know two really good guys in the business um, that were always about helping the younger kids, and we need more of those people in the wrestling business, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, th- so during your first run, um, when was your first uh, singles title? My first singles title that is way down the road. Like <laughs> I thought you won for Bobby Bradley. I did win for Bobby Bradley in 2007. That that was like down okay. the road. Yeah, cuz uh you know, uh, shortly after the Mr. Fitness thing is when we did the Cruiserweight Killer stuff and that's when yeah. I, I really got to like take off and travel. But then in 2007 is when TRE happened and those were a lot of fun times. We've had a couple of matches uh together against each other, which was real fun. And then uh yeah, he put the title on me. I defeated uh Rage and Dog in uh in a hardcore match with chains and blood and all that stuff that was my the first time ever i got to do that and i uh this was uh this was my last match in the company like as i got the title put on me it was my last match in wrestling and in that company for quite a while because this was the match where like i took the powerbomb off the top through some chairs yeah yeah and then uh hurt my leg real bad and that's what uh sent me into the hospital with the almost amputee shenanigans and then that would uh, send me down the path of not wrestling again for seven years so uh, and 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 that's kind of where i wanted to get to so um over these years right so that was about five the first five years of your wrestling career something like that because i think we started in 2002 two in the yard um so you did have the leg injury, but also for those five years that I knew you, you continuously got larger. It, well, there wasn't there, you know. So, was it just the the scare with the the leg injury that made you stop, or did it get to a point where the leg injury had you down and you and you just realized once you tried to get, did you try to get back in a ring after the leg injury? Uh, yes, uh, but. I had a very couple of harsh talks with uh, people I respected. You know, we didn't really get into Cincinnati Red, another guy who was influential on me. You know, those five years, those five years, like, didn't, I didn't really comprehend, like, what I could achieve in those five years. Because in those five years, you know, I wrestled Chris Daniels. I worked for APW, which was, which was the, the, the the promotion that was on the Beyond the Mat. That, you know, at the time, that was like a small dream of mine. Like, I got to wrestle for APW. Like, so that was like huge for me. You know, I've been in the ring with Virgil, Gangrel, you know, all these things that I never thought were possible in that time. So when it, when it ended on a scare, like, you know, I was sad, but not like so sad because everything I got to do was like a gift and something that I never thought I would get to do. Uh, but you know, when I, when I reached out to like, you know, come to training again, they just said, look, like, this is like, you're going to die. 
you know, I we you got to go and just not we can't have you dying in a ring. And that was just like the wake up call. Like, okay, well I'm just going to step away if like people that I love and people that know me are going to say that I can't imagine what someone that that doesn't know me is going to think. Uh, well, yeah, and and I will say just as someone, uh, you know, when you get in a ring with someone that's that's your size, uh, it's a little bit scary to be the person across the ring from you. Um, now, not so scary that I still didn't call for a crossbody, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I did and and immediately regretted it. <laughs> well, you also gotta you also gotta consider it wasn't just that too. Like, yeah. this was this was uh, you know the work rate era was on the rise. You know, when, when I started. And so I would get I would get a lot of like eye rolls and dirty looks when like you know someone who was trying to attain that type of style when they would see me on the sheet with them they would kind of eye roll like oh well I'm not gonna have the match I want to have today and you yeah know, and then they'd be shocked that how good a match they had and how much you really did even at 500 pounds yeah right? like <laughs> I mean there I mean there is that you know I didn't go and stink the joint out I mean I'm not gonna say I didn't you know everybody does but you know I think oh yeah I'm sure you had a bad match once once or twice yeah along the I'm way not somewhere, gonna but... I'm not gonna this isn't gonna be some rags to riches story where like oh I was fat and like couldn't couldn't move and but I overcame everything <laughs> maybe in life but not in the ring you know I had some stinkers it happens uh but you know there, one thing that they can't take away is that I loved I loved the business so much that I was going to give it my all, no matter if it came out poo-poo to people that don't really like super heavyweight matches. So, yeah, and so you just touched off where I was kind of going. Um, your weight did become something very scary for your friends and family, I, me included. I was, I mean, we were all very concerned for your health. Um, what was the and i and so we need to dig on this guy i think this is a really huge part of the story um it is for me too what did when did you have that moment where you finally said enough is enough i'm done with this shit i don't want to be 600 pounds well from i mean i never wanted to be the size i was i've always wanted well, to. of course yeah of course i know i'm just saying i you know I, i've always wanted to get down to that to you know I just never had that work ethic and I never really had the motivation to do so. Uh, you know, back then you know, that, that size, cause once I quit wrestling, I got into music, you know, it, it, it took, yeah. a, it took a long time for me, for that light bulb to go off. And as I got into music, I didn't stop getting bigger. I even got even more bigger. Um, well, yeah, because now you'd cut out all the physical activity that, yeah. you, like, basically. Yeah. yeah. So the the physical activity that I had while I was getting bigger doing that, you know, maybe it was keeping me like, it, it was keeping the rise slower. But as soon as I quit wrestling and went to music, and I did that for like two or three years, I kept going higher and higher and higher. Uh, but it, you know, uh, just off chance, the day I closed my MySpace account because that was a thing back then. Yes. Uh, you know, I, you know, MySpace was dwindling down and like everyone was kind of switching to Facebook and stuff like that. And the, the first thing that I see the day that I'm going to close it was a comment from a lady, which, you know, uh, I, you know, that's another thing. You know, I wasn't a, a, an unhappy person at all. Uh, no, no. Like I was that size. I had a good life. You know, I, I, I wrestled. I was in music. You know, I was 
pretty successful with women, you know, for being that size. Um, so I think it's just a matter of like not knowing the many faces that depression has and, and depression could just simply not give it a shit or not being aware of the impact that you'll leave if you do die. So that's kind of where I was at. You know, I wasn't like depressed, like sad and like moping about who I was as a big person. It's just, you know, oblivious and ignorant to the fact of how serious it could get. So like I was saying about the whole MySpace thing, I get a comment from a lady and uh, who ended up being my wife. Uh, and from then on then, you know, the, the last thing I did on MySpace was meet my wife. And, you know, about like a year into our relationship, she kind of told me like, hey, I'm aware of the things that you should be doing medically. And if you don't start doing it, I can't, I just can't, you know, I can't be, be in a relationship where I know that it's going to end because of a death. I can't do that for me. I can't do that for my daughter. And by, by the way, she had a three-year-old daughter at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's basically, that was the light bulb moment. It wasn't like, because no one gave me an ultimatum like that. Like, hey, get yourself better or we're done. So this was like the first time where I loved something enough to better myself, which was a bit of an eye-opener because not even my not even promoters and other wrestlers did that with wrestling as the carrot dangling in front of me like i didn't better myself for wrestling but i was bettering myself because i couldn't lose this person so that was a big wake up call that hey there's bigger things than wrestling so uh, i i i i just this is something i want to talk about cuz this i i think this is something that we all go through. I definitely went through this because I know for my, when I started trying to lose weight, um, I, I finally started counting calories. Like I realized at one point, um, because I was too, like we talked about, I was 280 for, from when I graduated through the first few years of wrestling. And then when I stopped kind of training three days a week, I gained 50 pounds in six months. Because I was consuming somewhere between 12,000 and maybe 20,000 calories a day at one point. Like, I, and I know that sounds insane. Like, to think, like, someone's eating 10,000 calories a day. So, um, how hard was, like, so for me, what I did was I just got my diet down to where I kept my calories under, like, 2,500 a day including sodas, everything. I would count all my calories and I just couldn't lose weight. I was still 375, only eating, you know, 2000 calories a day. And so, um, did you try, I mean, did you try anything before you ended up on surgery or all of it? I tried yeah. everything, every fad, every calorie counting, everything, but you know, no one talks about food addiction. It's all the, all, right. all the trendy addictions are drugs, alcohol, Food is the most powerful one there is because even if like you're not a drug addict or an alcoholic, people go to food as comfort. They don't even know they're doing it. Even if they're like, you know, a normal person that doesn't like spiral from food. Yeah. He, everybody, you know, like they, they talk about periods and chocolate. That's, you know, that's, it's, it's funny to talk about, but it is a real thing. Like, you know, when my wife is having her month, 
chocolate always makes everything better. It's not just sub, it's not a punchline in a movie. It makes every female feel better that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, so it's just food is so powerful. Like it makes you feel better. You know, there's that real moment in the second Austin Powers movie. I'm 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 I eat because I'm unhappy, and I'm unhappy because I eat. That's such a true thing. It, it, you know, it's it's such it, it's a funny thing in that movie, but it's such a real thing. So. Uh, I tried every fad diet, and then finally, like, you know, we just said, fuck it, let's just do that surgery. Because at the time, I'm 570 pounds. The, we need to do something to, like... Right. To make the... To, we need to do something. Like, this was, like, just a, a life-saving uh, event. And, yeah, 2012, you know, after a series of classes, you know, I got I got sleeved in 2012, and, you know... I, Within six months, I I dropped a hundred pounds, and then a, a and then a year into it, I was you know, two eighty, and I haven't been two eighty since middle school. Right, right, and 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 see that that's where I struggled for about two years, like eating nothing but chicken, and and my biggest addiction is soda. Like it is the hardest thing, and even after my my weight loss surgery. I still ended up back on soda slowly but surely. And right now I have a soda next to me, you know, as we're recording. It's my hardest thing. But I have not gained any weight in the last seven years since since I in, hurt my knee and, and sat in bed for two months and I gained 20 pounds and said, okay, that's enough of that shit. Because I was, like, depressed because I hurt my knee. I really wanted to wrestle, but I couldn't even walk. And so I just literally sat at home and ate cheeseburgers and pizza and drank soda for for a month and i gained 20 pounds and i haven't gained a pound since then like i i mean i fluctuate between whatever but i've been the same weight for the last seven years now um since we're on food addiction you did not have the same experience you started gaining again and well yeah, yeah i mean like well the with the surgery and going down to like 270 you know when you're that size at that age you know I felt superhuman, like, you know, just, right. just being able to tie my shoes without holding my breath just felt like a, a, a accomplishment. It made me feel like an athlete and making me myself feel like an athlete. I started getting the itch to wrestle again. Uh, and I was like, I wonder if there's like an avenue back into wrestling. And that's when, uh, you know, I got on the horn with uh, Marcus Riot and uh, Stephen Andrews and they were like, I, sh I sent them pictures, and the, you know they were so blown away about how I looked. They just offered me to come down, roll around a bunch, uh, take some bumps, and then like from there is when I started going to Jesse's again, and uh, that's where I took my friends. Uh, I, I took I went to Jesse's again because I had an argument about how wrestling was fake and blah 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 blah. Anybody can do it. So I was like, really? Would you be willing to go with me to a training school? And and I convinced them to do so, and they never talk shit about wrestling ever again. <laughs> just running, absolutely, just running the ropes. They were convinced. It's like they do this all the time. Yes, yeah. every day. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can't tell you how many people we had that showed up to the backyard, or I've seen they. It's their first day, and the first time they hit the mat, the the just the the eyeballs you know shoot across you know the their eyes go wide and they go holy shit every single part of this ring hurts the ropes hurt the mat hurts the turnbuckles hurt everything hurts it does not feel good and uh even just roll trying to do rolls on the on the mat you feel like holy shit 
Yeah. This is going to be like these guys get picked up over someone's head and forcibly slammed on this thing. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So I, I start making, you know, I start training again, you know, as a 28 year old and just, you know, I'm like getting the itch and I start like going more. And now I'm starting to like think like, oh, man, I got to wrestle again because now now my stepdaughter at this time is getting older. I, you know, she's retaining, she's like retaining memory. She's like 10, you know, she, so I, yes. want, I want her to watch this live. I want her to say that she saw me wrestle. So that became like a big goal. And I, I, I got a few bookings, uh, for, uh, uh, an, a, a promotion in the high desert called alpha Omega wrestling. And that's how I would get like my show experience before you and I donned the hashtag team. Um, but it wasn't until, Richie, uh, my cousin, who was a video editor, did a bunch of work for David Marquez. He came over and he basically made like the, you know, it's probably the biggest production like ever as far as like independent wrestling goes. If you look right. at this, if you look at this video, like I'll never be this badass looking again. It, this looks like a total vignette that could air on an NXT. Like I just was blown away, and it and it involved me, like. And it was like high production lighting and, you know, sound effects. And I sent this out and immediately like, you know, and this is no like big feed or anything, but immediately I got like contacted by several promotions, like small companies. Like, let's just, let's not, yeah. let's, let's not over, overstate this thing. But the, the, the side of that video got me to get more shows on the second run, you know, that I yeah. had as a smaller fat guy. So I, uh, um, that's how I got back into wrestling again. And I did that for a, a, a few more years, but like, you know, I, I was faced with a harsh reality from somebody that we both know, uh, during one of my EWF classes, uh, coming back was that, you know, and it's kind of a harsh reality, but it actually sparked me into doubling down on what I think is most important in wrestling today. Yeah. Uh, I was told that the reason why I got so many bookings and got so many opportunities beforehand is because the most interesting thing about me was the thing that I was, that was killing me. Like, you, right. Yeah. The fact that you were 500 pounds, the yeah. fact that you were 500 pounds made it okay for us to treat you as an attraction. Now you just look like the fat guy next door. So you really need to work on your work in order for us to buy it. Uh, and, you know, as harsh of a reality as that was, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a fucked up scenario. Like, you were marketable when you were dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you uh, know, it, it is, which... it's true. You know, I, at that size, I can turn heads at an airport. But as I look, as I looked then, I just looked like a mechanic, you know? Yeah, yeah. You just look like a normal fat dad. That, exactly. That, yeah, the construction worker. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, uh. Yeah, I you know you can edit it out if you want, but you have to name names. Who was the dickbag that told you that? Oh, that was. Oh, okay, yeah, it's a piece of shit. No one cares about his opinion. <laughs> Fuck him. But he's no, the, we, he is one of the biggest pieces of shit ever. Well, we can he's totally we, wrong. We can say <laughs> well, we, we can say that, but you know, it there was a lot of truth to that. You know, it. it, it I I completely disagree. Well, I think the fact that you were a good worker was the reason that you could book, and the fact that you were five hundred pounds. Uh, added to it it took it did take it to another level i will agree with him there the, you know the fact that you were so big was a marketable thing but the fact that you were so big and could work and you weren't just fucking king kong bundy 
out there who was getting bookings because you were big. He's fucking completely full of shit. All of his wrestling takes are completely full of shit. But I will. there is a germ of truth to it. Yes, you needed to be a little bit better worker at 280 than you were at 500 pounds. But, yeah, well, fuck him. Bad, <laughs> well, bad take, good take, however you want to look at it. It did influence me to double down on the entertainment side of things. Yeah. And this was something that I kind of preached at nauseum, much to the chagrin of all my flippy friends that I enjoy watching. But I told them, I was like, look. There is a reason why they leave the ring, the leave the building, remembering whose house Ron's house, and forgetting the four flips that you did that almost killed you in your match. You know, you know, no one, no one's gonna buy a shirt of a flip that you did in the ring. You know, but they're buying my shirt just because they love chanting my very Run DMC ripoff, uh, like you know, catchphrase that eventually was stolen by Swerve Scott. Fuck him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's be honest. I think he can have it. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I, I during the second run, how many titles did you end up collecting here? Uh, three. Yes. Uh, I, I did collect three. But, you know, again, I don't think I could have worked the same as I did as a 500-pounder. I did have to step up. I did give my opponent more, and I had a right to do so uh, this time. You know, I, I can bump a little more for the guys I'm wrestling with and have it make sense. Uh, than uh, than I than it did at uh, 500 pounds. So I I had enough wind to have the matches I wanted to have, which was which was with a breath of fresh air. I got to work with some guys that I never thought I'd work with, you know, in Brian Kendrick. I don't know how much that of a bragging right that is now, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I hope he's doing well and I hope he runs shows again. Um, but yeah, uh, I had a great second run. My my daughter got to see me wrestle. My wife got to see me wrestle. It wasn't a story that I just kind of was telling to them. It was something that they actually got to see for themselves. And, you know, I when it ended again, I, I felt like I got what I wanted out of wrestling again. I just, you know, uh, it was it was it was fun. I got to have matches for a length of time that I never thought were possible. So now now I want to get into a little bit more of just the fun stuff, just kind of things from your career. What is the worst gimmick? idea you personally were ever pitched i think you're asking this because you know it yeah uh, but it was definitely my second day of training and uh jesse bless his heart when he has when he has a great idea he gets so animated no matter how bad it is he was like well oh. yeah when he has an idea let's not yeah, call it great. any idea when he thinks he has a great idea so he's like brother <laughs> brother your last name garippo we can call you the grip and then you just have like a, a crazy headlock vice, like a, a head vice gimmick, brother, the claw, and we'll just call you the grip. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Do what is the worst idea you ever pitched somebody? That, Do you have one off the top of your head? Probably the hat for Carl. <laughs> And so in the same way, we'll just call him Carl the Hat, and he'll just wear hats. Yeah, he and just that was has the a whole gimmick. <laughs> he has a different hat every entrance, uh, every match. Oh. And then you were like, you were like, okay, well then you get in the ring and cut a promo as the Hat, and you tell me how this can get over. And then, <laughs> and that's oh. that's what awarded me worst ideas ever, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so for you, heel or babyface? Oh, it's totally heel. It's definitely heel because I love being in control of the match, being in control of the pace of the match. 
Uh, I think like being a heel is where you listen to the crowd. Uh, I think a heel has like the biggest responsibility of the match. I I feel like I feel like it's their show. You know, they listen to the crowd. They let the babyface know when it's time to do stuff. I always enjoyed that aspect of it, but I did enjoy the babyface stuff because just who doesn't love getting cheered? And like, and like especially in today's climate where it's so hard to get cheered because you want to get cheered, whereas like you're getting cheered for doing dastardly things. So uh, you you did kind of touch on this, but who were some of the biggest names you actually got to work with? The very first time I got to get in there with somebody, you know, of name value was a a photo op with Brutus Beefcake. Uh, Okay. Yeah, Brutus Beefcake. We were just in the ring taking pictures with fans. And that that was like I was in the ring with him. The first time I had a physical altercation with somebody was with, uh, I had a match with the Human Tornado and the Doctor of Style Slick was managing him. And after uh, Human Tornado won the match, Slick came in to celebrate and then me and Biggie Biggs cornered Slick acting like we were going to beat the shit out of him. And then Gangrel, of all people, come in and save the day and uh, give me a big clothesline and the Impaler, uh, even though even though he told me that I shouldn't take the Impaler because this was the 500 pound days. But I was like, just me being <laughs> me being a total mark. <laughs> like just please give me the impaler. And so that happened. That was fun. And then I got in the ring with the meat sauce king himself, Virgil, uh, who gave me the hardest punch I've ever had in my life. Did not hold back at all. And it was just a run in. I didn't get to work with Virgil, but he ran in, popped me in the mouth, something fierce. But uh, my big claim to fame uh, was when I got to work for the Young Bucks in their promotion. Way before they were Nick and Matt Jackson, they were Mr. Instant Replay and Slick Nick. They booked me in the very fortunate, you know, awesome memory that was a tag match between me and uh, Dustin Cutler, uh, as we know him now, versus Slick Nick and Christopher Daniels. And this was in Christopher Daniels' peak TNA run with the X-Division title and everything. You know, it was, uh, yeah, that was a big, like, that was like one of those moments where I was like, okay, I can stop today, and I'd be like, I, I, I win. <laughs> I'm a wrestler. This is what I go back and relive every day in my mind, and I have ever since. Uh, but, yeah, I think, unless I'm missing somebody, I think that may have been it. I know I've... Did, uh, you, did you ever have to work with Hardcore Kid? Yes, I did. In the second run, Aaron Aguilera uh, was one of my title defenses. Yes, yes. I did. Yes. Uh, and how? And, so, so that leads me to my next question. Um. Well, I two questions. First, let's do the one. Who was the biggest prick you ever dealt with in the business? Oh, okay. Because I know that Aaron Aguilera is in the running. <laughs> Aaron Aguilera is in the running, but there is one gentleman that I don't think I'll get any pushback on, and you may have known him, but uh, this was a guy that was not, you know, smart to the business. He was a body guy who thought his shit didn't stink and just... He even like went out of his way to blatantly tell people, me included, that this was the superstar table of the dressing room and meant what he said just because oh, just because he looked better than everybody, but he couldn't work a lick. But he was the first guy to ever body slam me at my highest weight, and uh, I'm talking about an EWF wrestler named Cyrus. I uh, have a great Cyrus story. And I'm pretty sure he is a nice gentleman outside of the wrestling business, 
But I'm not. <laughs> that he is the most arrogant douchebag I've ever met in pro wrestling. Too, I agree with you. I forgot about him because he was so insignificant in the world until you brought it up. But there's one time I was at training with Cyrus. Uh, me and my sister were both at training at EWF, and uh, he was very famous for crying anytime someone hit him at all. Yep. And my sister took it upon herself to get in the ring with him and beat the ever-loving shit out of him, stiff as she's ever been, just to make a fucking point because she knew, is this little bitch going to cry if I hit him too? My little five foot 110-pound self, is he going to cry in front of all these motherfuckers? And she, because it was just a heat spot, so he didn't get to return anything. I Those were the, I mean, my sister was notoriously snug. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, she she was the one who when when we got new students, her job was to beat them up to see if they'd come back. Yep. Uh she beat the fuck out of him and everybody in the building was laughing their ass off. And it is the one time he didn't say a fucking word. He didn't say shit because he didn't want to look like a pussy in front of every single person there. And uh it may have been one of the last times he wrestled, I think, honestly. Like he he was not around very long after that. So uh, on the flip side of that, who would you say is just the nicest, most genuinely good human being you encountered in the wrestling business? I would probably like the one that's no surprise uh, if if you've shared locker rooms in Southern California is probably Stepdaddy. Uh, that dude will just oh yeah that dude will just go out of his way to just like give you advice and like praise everything you did but then dance around what you should work on like he would he would like dance around and instead of being the harsh like you know mentor that most people need but i think he would go out of his way to deliver advice in a way that wouldn't break the now generation spirits because that yeah he was a big big time stewie griffin compliment sandwich guy that guy yeah no I, i i as far as like people that you wouldn't expect dude mike knox is the biggest teddy bear I've ever been around in my life. And, uh, you know, I got to wrestle in IZW where he started at one point, and this is when he made the jump to WWE, so I just missed him. So all of my knowledge of him was just that crazy-looking bearded freak on TV. So when he kind of, you know, made his way through back to the independents, and I got to work a few shows with him, not him specifically, but just share the locker room. Yeah, yeah. He would just be like the biggest sweetheart. And I was just like, huh, never judge a book by its cover. So I think that'd be like another one. I, I know I'm going to miss people. Uh, no, that's okay. But uh, yeah, Mike Knox was a surprisingly sweet guy. Uh, Christopher Daniels was a bit of a hard ass, but I've always heard stories about him being a hard ass. Like, he would expect a lot, even from a guy my size. He was like, you should be where you need to be, <laughs> exactly where you need to be and when you need to be there. <laughs> like, he would, like, uh, they talk about John Cena being, like, the loud match caller. Fucking fu- Christopher Daniels in a skating rink. <laughs> the, the building next door can hear him call the match. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So, then, who is the best guy you ever worked with that nobody's ever heard of or, or a few, if you want to list a few guys that were just, you thought you worked with them and you, they blew you away and you thought they were good. They should be big stars, but they never really quite made it. Um, well, right off the bat, I'll, I'll have to go with hook Bomberry. 
Hook Bomberry, I, I, you know, despite despite his charisma on on podcasts, uh, <laughs> one of the best like characters, and then deliver it in the. I think he could have made it as like an R Truth or a Santino eventually. Just like he can really turn it on technically, but all character, just all character. Um, I think you know, maybe lower on the spectrum. Uh, Stephen Andrews is one of those guys that maybe just didn't, you know, maybe doesn't have enough knowledge to get more out there, or he was just always like the baby of the HRW locker room. Um, who else? I mean, working with uh, Scorpio Sky, who did make it, but he was like the first guy I got to work with, and I was like, oh, like this is there's more. Yeah, that, there's another level. Yeah, there's another level. Like, like, like I. Like, just the way he would kind of position himself in the ring to communicate with me. He was the first guy that used the ref to that, that to communicate spots that I would ever experience. Like, yeah. I would always be like, well, I got to tell the guy directly. So I'll wait for a hold or wait for a shoot off. But, like, he would create space in the ring and have the ref tell me what to do. And I was like, genius. <laughs> and I never thought of that. I was like, use the ref. Uh, so then, uh, who is the absolute worst fucking guy you ever worked with? You're you're gonna ask me that? <laughs> yes, that's mean. <laughs> oh. I mean, it's not like you haven't buried guys over the last few weeks here on the podcast. So <laughs> yeah, but that was all jokes. Ah, um, <laughs> oh, gosh, who who can I say that it would just be kind of like, okay, that's fair. Um. Oh, I think I want to say, okay, there was a luchador, uh, a big guy luchador. Um, his name was Darkseid. Yep. <laughs> and this, and I'm going to preface this, but this guy is the nicest, the nicest human. And I told him one of my best Mexican jokes that isn't racist it's just a play on words. And I remember that he laughed so hard at it that, like, I retold it to him in our match during a <laughs> during a chedlock. And he started shake giggling in the hold. <laughs> and, you know, it, it actually pains me to say that he's probably one of the worst as far as talent goes. But, you know, I wasn't much better. And... I it just sparked a, such a good memory, <laughs> but the joke, the joke, and I can tell it. It's not, it's not so bad. But what do you call four Mexicans in quicksand? What's that? Cuatro cinco. Oh. <laughs> so okay, what is the worst shitbag promoter moment of your career? Just like one of those moments, you're like, fuck, really? Uh, I wrestled for a promotion that didn't live long. Uh, in uh, Riverside called Grindhouse Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And boy, oh boy. Uh, if, you know, now bless their hearts. I'm sure everybody in the locker room had a great time, but it's not the locker room that I enjoy being around. And boy, I don't think I would have lasted long in the 80s because there was there was alcohol. There was, there was you know, marijuana. There was all stuff that I like to do, but not maybe before I put my life in your hands. So Or, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
and there was people there I respected, people there that were new, and just, you know, this may be how you prep for a show, but this is not how I prep for a show. I I, I had a few. Um, the, 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 the first real just, like, shitbag promoter thing that happened to me was this the guy called me up for a ring rental we discussed the price i gave him the price i told him when we show up with this ring you are to pay me right or i'm leaving and there will be no show and i showed up and there was zero dollars and he's like oh brother i'm uh, i'm sorry i'm like okay now, mind you, it was a two-hour drive almost to this venue. And a lot of my friends in the business are at this show. This was – that the, I think you worked for them, too. This was a small promotion. This was one of the times that uh, John, of all people, worked with Stepdaddy as a masked Canadian uh, gimmick. It was out there. The Ponderosa restaurant up there. I can't even remember the name of the promotion. But it, was, it wasn't the Young Bucks. It was an offshoot um, from the young bucks once they once they started getting out in the world um there were wrestlers at this show who were literally offering to go to the ATM machine to take money out of their accounts to give me something for my time and effort and so I did end up deciding to stay because I didn't want to cost my friends an opportunity to wrestle and we were already freaking there right and so we did it. I did the ring rental. Um, the other one would be a tie uh, over at uh, the old TRE Bobby Bradley promotion when the very first show where this was the opposite of your experience, uh, where all you could see was empty bleachers and uh, there were like maybe 20-ish people at this show. So all of us knew we were not getting paid so that wasn't necessarily an issue. But when he was going around to the wrestlers after the show trying to, you know, to break the bad news, he goes, oh, brother. What, uh, and just in that moment, he goes, oh, wait, do you smoke weed? No, bro, I don't. I'm sorry. He's like, oh, okay, well, I, yeah. then I can't give you anything for the night. He's like, he had weed. He had weed, but not oh, any money oh, to brother. pay any wrestlers. <laughs> oh, brother, I, the- I took the Bobby Bradley weed payout for sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but also, the the really the worst one. So, we did a ring rental for Bobby on a show because he booked a double ring bullshit extravaganza, whatever. Oh, I got and, a good story about that. And the second ring did not... It canceled last minute. So, I offered up my ring uh, because all of my family were going to be on this show. Plus, my, you know, you and some of my other guys. I think Red Tornado. And uh, so, I said, okay... I'll do it. And I think I got my own match, like specifically that I wanted booked on this show where I got to work with a a, a little bit of a bigger local name um, and, you know, my family. But um, so my mom did ring crew at my house. Bobby was here. She helped us take apart the ring and load it up on the truck. All of her children, all three of us were working for free on the show and renting him the ring for free on the show to help him out because they knew he was trying to get things off the ground. His wife tried to make my mom buy a ticket to this show. 
And I told, I went to Bobby immediately and he corrected this. So, okay, good to his credit. He corrected this. Then after the show was done, while I'm breaking down my ring, which a ring rental is typically three or $400. That's the going rate. I'm renting him my ring for free. Three of us worked on his show for free. My mom did ring crew for free. His wife has says, Hey guys, there's hot dogs and chips and sodas left over. Do you guys want any? You know, and we all expected as she was offering, of course we will. We'll take your leftover stale hot dogs because at least that's something. So we go over there and she goes, okay, hot dogs are a dollar. Sodas are a dollar. Chips are a dollar. And we all at the same time just looked and said, fuck you. And just walked away and did not buy any of their leftover food that was getting ready to get thrown in the trash. So th those are my three biggest, like, fuck you promoter moments. <laughs> so I do have two more questions for you. Um, this is what I always like to end interviews with. What is, like, the most fun on the road at a show, whatever story that you will tell forever for years and years? What is the best uh, professional wrestling incident? Of it could be in the ring, outside of the ring is more likely, could just be in a car whatever it was thing that happened because of professional wrestling well i've told this story before but maybe not in great detail but and it's not it's funny now but uh we and i'm saying we as in myself canis Larray, humor tornado scott lost and another wrestler uh who was also a big deal in california uh we had a show in arizona and i am the driver for these group of folks and you know judging by who's in the car it's basically the whole money drawing portion of the card and then is the rest is all local arizona people so halfway down to blythe we break down in my big expedition and we're screwed uh and we don't know if we're gonna make it to the show or not but lo and behold i am the only person that knows the one person in blythe who just happens to be a car mechanic and we wait so long for a tow truck. The tow truck gets us, puts us all on the tow truck in my expedition. Your sister wanted to bail and ride up in front with the tow truck, leaving us all in the tall expedition on the tow truck. I was like, no, you're staying in here if we all have to be in here because this sucks and scary. We're all going to get scared together. So we get to Blythe, and sure enough, my wheel needs a spindle, and there's no spindles around. So my crazy MacGyver friend welded a spindle <laughs> and then installed the welded spindle so much so and by the way we missed the show so i in my mind i'm like completely like devastated because the, to me this is like you know a moment for me i'm 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 not only on the show because of who i'm around uh i am dropping the ball and not delivering this card to this show and in the background one of the guys is like i could tell that he's trying to bail on the group to get in a ride elsewhere. Uh, but uh, that, that was also fun. There's a, there's a famous picture floating around of us at the mechanics uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere around. I got to find it. But um, the spindle that the guy welded and installed on my wheel was so good that when I came, I went to the mechanic to get it fixed. This guy was like, honestly, I don't see a reason this, this could just be on here. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> he's like this is like super durable and great like he did this on the spot like at Blythe it, like yeah 
like you have to like order these. This is amazing. So <laughs> I think if I was going to get anything out of that story other than like, you know, fuck, I missed a booking. You know, I, I didn't deliver like the stars of SoCal to a promotion. I didn't get to like have a follow up, you know, return to this place. But I get to tell a really great story about a wizard of a mechanic who's also a welder that can weld the perfect piece for a vehicle to get us home. So pretty awesome, pretty funny, non-wrestling but wrestling story. Do you have a, a worst then if that's the best uh, or is that kind of tied for the best of times and the worst of times in the same story? I mean, judging by the cast of characters, I guess you could put it in either category. But uh, I think like maybe if I was going to go with the worst of times, maybe maybe like the first first booking outside the backyard during the backyard run that we had. Yeah. Was when uh, we did a show for Bill Anderson in like a back of a pub uh alley area yes and uh this is where this is the infamous story where i wrestled jason the butcher and then got knocked out by cody west um oh that aside and just the the scariness of the event that took place and we told this story in the archives go go review it but the what i was uh kind of holding over my head was the fact that guys that were starting to make names for themselves came to watch the show and I, did, and I just didn't want to look bad in front of them. And, you know, when you see the match on paper that I was going to have, I was clearly in a spot where I wasn't going to have the matches that looked good for me at the time, wrestling another awkward super heavyweight who wasn't training, wasn't safe. Yeah. Uh, at least I was both of those things. So at least the very horrible match uh, that took place <laughs> ended with a lot of controversy and scariness because that's the only thing that saved it, really. But uh, the guys that I'm talking about were the Cubans. Ricky Reyes and Rocky yeah. Romero came to watch the show. And, you know, I wanted to look good. And, you know, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that day was bad for me, too, because I also got injured in the opening match uh, where uh, wrestler Biggie Biggs uh, did a Liger kick to me in the corner. And I didn't realize that a 400-pound man basically cannonballing at you He's got to go somewhere, and his his body went directly into my knee and hyperextended it. Thank God it didn't break anything, didn't tear anything, but I couldn't walk. We still had to break down the ring at the end of the show, get it loaded up, and I had to sit there like an asshole not doing anything. <laughs> so, amazing. okay then. Uh, what then is the favorite match of your wrestling career? If I had to pick like a favorite match, I'd probably go and pick the one where I won the AEW the AOW title from Blake Grayson in that last man standing match. I think that was like that was like my uh like what what do you call it? That was like my fairy tale beginning ending. Like this was like the match I always wanted to have. Like I always wanted to have like an outlaw garbage match, but like take the bumps. Like not be the yeah. one that's throwing the guy. You know, I, I Got slammed on a ladder. I did a senton bomb on a ladder on the guy. I did a cannonball in the corner with a trash can on him. I got to do all the all the cool Attitude Era garbage like shit that I've always wanted to do and win a title in the process. So uh, I th I think that one is like my favorite as far as like stuff that I can do. But I think my last match there, uh, uh, well my last match period, uh, where I put over Stephen Andrews. And in the in the moment, you know, no one knows I'm leaving except for like a few people. 
So we had this match planned out where like, you know, he uh where I just beat him. But we have a we have a big false finish in the match planned out, but what my opponent doesn't know is that that's going to be the actual finish. So when he when he pins me and it actually happens, he wins the match unbeknownst to him. So I got to go out losing and I also got to surprise my opponent and he got a very genuine reaction when he beat me. And this was during a point where I wasn't being beaten, you know, I was kind of protect yeah yeah, yeah. you were dominating it. yeah yeah so you know the, and and the finish it, and it's such a it's such a vanity like 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 stroke fucking douchey thing of me because the false finish was three shooting star presses in a row and i and, <laughs> and he was just okay with me kicking out of kicking that out after then, him hitting three shooting stars consecutively and then going home with just one of my finishes and he was just fine with that but you know i chose i, I just the the whole thing in the background was that i was just going to take that pin and, and even then it couldn't just be one it had to be three <laughs> awesome awesome so then last question and then we will wrap this for today is there another run in you is that is that itch still there here and there uh or are you just kind of at never say never or are you done 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 there's always you know as much as i I'm content if I never wrestle again. I'll say that. But, you know, this shit's a drug. You, you know, you never say never. And, you know, I've had many... I will say, though, but based on my willpower alone, I've had many people throw ideas at me and give me, like, a date. And, like, you can get on the show if you want to. Uh, but it's just... I think I'm finally to a point where, like, I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. I'll come watch. Uh, <laughs> but... I don't know. And this this might sound douchey and like arrogant, but unless it's something like really good <laughs> and and I'm nobody to say that, but I am somewhere in life where I can say that. You know, I'm I'm no I'm no needle mover, I'm just a regular dude, but if I put on boots, it's going to be for something that I can sink my teeth into, not just show up for a match. Yeah, I, and and I get that cuz you know, that's honestly that's the biggest thing that stops me from from going back because again like people know you even more so than me but it's not like if you started wrestling tomorrow that you feel like there'd be a quick in at AEW or NXT or New Japan like it's not it, you know neither of us achieved a level where like if we showed up tomorrow uh the phones would be ringing off the hook you know um and so either of us would have to work our way up from the bottom. And I think that's for me, the biggest deterrent is like, I don't want to go because even still I'd have to go in politic to get booked on indie shows where I'm clearly better than 80% of the roster, just <laughs> by psychology, not like I'm this great worker or anything, but I guarantee you I could put a match together better than every single person there, you know, and, and maybe there's a few guys who are more athletic that can execute a match better than me. And that's fine. Um, I, the, I accept my limitations, but. <laughs> and plus on the flip side of that, and this is probably going to anger a few, but like, you know, uh, I'm at a place financially where I can make the money, the lowest person on the totem pole at AEW, AEW makes, and I don't have to break my back in order to do it. Right. Right. And that helps too. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure I make just as much as Dr. Luther uh, in my shoot, <laughs> in my shoot job. <laughs> And, uh, 
Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I hope I'm making as much money as Dr. Luther right now. Like I, you know, I made six figures last year for the first time in my life. Like I don't, you know, need, re I, you know, so losing money to wrestle isn't exactly uh, an exciting proposition for me. Yeah. But like, I think if, if we knew someone that said, Hey, go get a couple matches under your belt, send me a tape and I can get you on some major independence. Or I can get you, you know, I, I then it it would be it would be hard for me to pass it up, you know. Yeah. If, if I could get real bookings and get paid real money to wrestle, I I would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, for but. sure. And plus, you know, especially me, the itch has been, you know, the itch is only present because you know the second run happened because I was a smaller fat guy. If it happened this time, this would be the time that I would actually have a more decent body for the business like i i'm i'm definitely smaller than i was uh on my second run and i'm definitely more defined than i was on my run and and you're you're actually really working out like because before the last couple of years the only working out you ever really did was in a ring right exactly like, and then when, yeah. the, when i did the surgery uh you know i just relied on that to lose the weight i was completely malnourished and whatnot but you know when covid happened and you know the first statistics were old people and fat people that really made me go, okay, time to like change behavior because, like you said, I started gaining back after my second run ended really fast, uh, especially promotions at work. Uh, I sat a lot more, uh, so I just started rapidly gaining again. And sure enough, I was 100 pounds away from being where I was and just corrected the behavior, started working out relentlessly, finding out real quick that you don't have time for a lot of shit if you stick to a regiment. Uh, but it's very rewarding because I love going to Ross and just buying clothes one time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you that and that's another thing that, you know, with weight loss, people don't talk about like how annoying it is to always constantly be buying new clothes because your size changes. Yeah. You know? And and, and it's funny because like there's not a big difference between like large and double XL and in me even mediums. Like if you're anywhere in there, you could probably get in a large or or in 2xl but like once you get over 2xl like the shirts like there's a huge difference between 3x 4x 5x and so like it's quite annoying when you're like teetering around that double xl size going up or down so, yes i will but, end with this i will end yeah. with this though if if promoters if you are listening and you do like message me again and i've had a couple uh you know you're going to have to give me time because the real reason I can't is because I've literally shrunken out of my last gear. So yeah. <laughs> I have no gear to wear except for my boots, which those are too expensive. And I didn't throw those away. <laughs> so uh, I will just end with this before I do the outro. Um, I, I, we are being a little serious today. Usually we're a lot more jovial and fucking with each other, but um, you over my weight loss was 100%. My decision to have a surgery is 100% because of you and everything you had. And, and, and mostly in a good way, but there also was this little voice in the back of my head. It was like, Ron is the laziest, fattest piece of shit I know. He can't be in better shape. Like, he can't weigh less than me. And <laughs> there was, like, just a little bit of that in the back of my head. And so that was part of it. And, uh, like, honestly, at this point, you from where I knew you earlier on in life to now, now you are like 
literally one of the top two or three hardest, most like hardest working, most driven, just incredible examples of what it means to be a grown man. I know on this planet and uh, you continue to inspire me always. And fuck. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> Well, I mean, the feeling is mutual. And, you know, it's funny that I broke into the business, you know, hanging on your every word and trying to impress you because you were my promoter before you were my best friend on this planet. Uh, but, you know, it's funny because even though we kind of went on adventures and wrestling and then we kind of circled back to having a podcast, I still hold you accountable as having a high opinion of wrestling, so much so that if I can get you to like something it pretty much solidifies to, <laughs> it pretty much solidifies to me like okay this is good even though even though i find that you're wrong about a lot of things if i can get you to go oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah that was good then i was like okay uh, the way i treat you in wrestling is the way i kind of treat some people in music like you know they if, if yeah. i could get them to like this and that means okay it's inarguable that it's good so, <laughs> so all right all right before i break down again uh yeah, so yes, buddy, I just, you know, as much as I fuck, I've fucked with you mercilessly for 20 years, you just need to know that you're one of my favorite humans, and uh, my I bettered myself because you bettered yourself, so thank you for that, sir. So, that's going to do it for this week. Any closing thoughts before, I, before we leave? Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure no one has cared or learned a damn thing the last few weeks. <laughs> They're like, can we talk about some stars now? That'd be great. But uh, no, I think uh, I think having these episodes uh, now was a smart play because I think we've gained people's trust and and offered them entertainment so much so that like maybe now they're interested in who we are rather than just coming out of nowhere and introducing ourselves with a big batch of who cares. So at least at least we've hooked people with our entertainment for them to gather some interest for us as human beings. And I hope they learned a lot. I hope our stories kind of give them the nudge to go out and try to do something in the business, maybe with our podcast. Maybe review us. Tell us that we're still fat pieces of shit and we suck. Just give us five stars in the process. <laughs> so that's right. Next week, we will be talking about real wrestling stars and people who you actually know and care about. I am Cole Dawson. Today, this was Who the Fuck is Ron Kilborn? He's pretty much the best goddamn guy I know, ladies and gentlemen. So you should be interested in him. And so thank you. We love you. And good night. Thanks for listening. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Creative Team Pod or just the Creative Team on Facebook. Follow Cole Dawson on Twitter and Instagram at Cole2130 and follow yours truly on Instagram or Twitter at Ron for Your Life. Number four, we'll see you next week on another episode of The Creative Team. 